Friends, it is a great opportunity to encourage you this morning from the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And as we consider it, a collision occurs when two objects headed in the opposite direction strike each other, causing one or both of the objects to change direction and to possibly even change shape. You've all seen this happen with physical objects. You've seen in the winter months as cars strike each other while colliding in the midst of slippery road conditions or snowstorms. You've seen it in the news as boats have collided at sea. And we celebrate collisions every Saturday and Sunday from the months of August through the month of February as American football is the most popular of athletic entertainment in the United States. It is a sport of collisions. But what does it look like when the things that are colliding are not physical objects? What does it look like when people within a culture are confronted with a reality so different than they had previously experienced in that culture that it demands a change of direction, a change of priorities, or even a changed life? This is what happens when God collides with secular culture, we witness what we might call a gospel collision. And this morning, I want to think with you for a couple of minutes about the position that you have in Christ right now, how not only that position in Christ is a huge blessing and encouragement to you, but it will mean necessarily that you will be engaged in a regular series of gospel collisions with the culture around you. And we consider this this morning from Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 to 9. And before we read it, let me just set a little context for you. A number of people had come to faith in Jesus in ancient Corinth, and a young church is now gathered there. But the cultural forces of the region are very strong. And they keep pulling these new Christians back into habits and patterns and make them resemble their culture. And so you have a church that is living in the tension between the incredibly strong force of their surroundings and an overwhelming powering of God displayed in the person of Jesus Christ. The church displays the glory of God in some ways, and yet we see a church that is characterized by the culture around it, and it contains some apathy and some confusion and some rebellion on topics of division and sexuality and social snobbery and divorce and marriage and pagan religions and corporate worship and even the bodily resurrection of Jesus. A gospel collision is happening in Corinth. And those issues are not too distant from our own. As our country continues to march toward a secular progressivism in the public sphere, there's a profound temptation for Christians to adopt a non-biblical and a number of confusing ideologies and behaviors as it relates to things, the very same things, things like sex and sexuality and authority and marriage and aspects of Eastern mysticism and even more. 
We see it in formerly Christian colleges. We see it in the splitting apart of historic Christian denominations. And we see it in individual churches and even in individual lives. And yet, as you seek to glorify God and accurately reflect the power of salvation that he's given you through Christ in the life of the church, you will live in the middle of a gospel collision. You're living in it right now. And so be encouraged with me and reminded with me as I read 1 Corinthians chapter 1 about your standing and the promises of God to you in the midst of such a dynamic. It says this, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sothenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all of those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into fellowship with his Son, Christ Jesus our Lord. Here, Paul uses a string of three descriptions in apposition to each other. There are three ways of describing the same reality in verse 2. Three ways of describing the same people. He calls them the church of God, those who are sanctified, and those who are called to be saints together with all of those who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. Three different angles in which he explores the wonderful and mysterious reality of being part of the family of God and the high position that that gives to you. First, he reminds them that they are the church of God. There's two parts of that. It's the church, but it's of God you know that the church belongs to God. <laughs> and the word church literally means a gathering or a gathered people or an assembly of God's people. You can't be part of a virtual church or an online church. And it's impossible to have nature be your church. You can't do church in solitude. Church, by definition, is the gathering together of God's people. And it doesn't belong to a person in the congregation who speaks the loudest or the most. It doesn't belong to the person with the strongest opinions. It doesn't belong to the pastor or to the head elder. It doesn't belong to the person who likes traditional music or the one who likes contemporary music. The gathered people of God belongs to God himself. He decides the boundaries 
of his family, and he tells us that in his word. He instills the leaders and the authorities. And as we see in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, he is the one who purchased each and every member of a church through the blood of his son. In 1971, the Afghan government gave a fledgling band of Christians permission to plant a church in Kabul, Afghanistan. It was the only Christian church building permitted on neutral soil in Afghanistan. The Afghan government permitted this place of worship only for use among the foreign community. It was never to be used by the Afghan people. One Sunday morning, only after three years of the sanctuary's dedication, soldiers arrived and began to hack away the wall between the street and the building of the church. And one gentleman in the congregation went to Kabul's mayor and prophetically warned, if your government touches that house of God, God will overthrow your government. The mayor responded by ordering the congregation to turn over the church for destruction, thereby eliminating the need for the Afghan government to pay compensation for the destroyed wall. This building does not belong to us, but to God, the people of the church replied. We can't turn it over for destruction. And they proceeded to serve tea and cookies to the soldiers who were destroying their place of worship. On Tuesday, July 17, 1973, the Afghan soldiers completed their destruction of the church building. That very night, King Mohammed Zahir Shahah who had ruled for 40 years, was overthrown in a coup. And the 227-year-old monarchy in Afghanistan came to an end forever. And the rest of the story is in the history book. And the crazy part of the whole ordeal is the reality that you know and that I know just because you destroy the building doesn't mean you've destroyed the church. Because the church is the people. And the buildings help, but we don't need a building to be a church. And God forms together a people purchased by his own son's blood and makes them into his people, the church. He describes one of the unique ways that those who recognize Jesus as Lord are marked apart. He says that they are sanctified, that you are sanctified. To be sanctified means to be set apart for the holy purposes of God. Now, there's all kinds of applicational weight for that for you and for me today. You can see... This in the book of 1 Corinthians, to be sure, but you experience it every single day. When you swim in the cultural soup that has so many good and healthy and godly components and so many ideas and values and practices that are opposed to God, the idea of being set apart causes a significant tension because the path of least resistance is the path that almost all of us intuitively take in our life especially in social dynamics. All of us want to take the easy way. But here's an identity-forming statement for you. 
one you need to remind yourself of all the time. You are set apart. You are supposed to be different. God didn't call you to salvation so that you could keep on thinking the way that you used to think and keep on acting the way that you used to act and keep on living the way that you used to live. That is why it's so important to be periodically reminded that you're not supposed to look like the world around you. Now, for so many of us, that's extremely difficult. It might be the most difficult part of being a Christian for some of us because there are two significant points of tension there. The first and the foremost is that for many number of us, for many reasons, we desire to fit in. We desire to blend in. We desire to be successful according to the standards of the world. We desire to be like the crowd. We also desire to place our values on the same thing or things that the culture places its values on. Sometimes that's just fine. But often, to be set apart, to be different, means adopting a mindset or common practices that go against the fact that the culture or the things that the culture is propagating. Because God has holy purposes for you. Another struggle is that we see, as an example throughout the ages, is some have viewed that themselves as set apart and their desires might be pure, but their expressions of those desires is extreme or obnoxious or downright abrasive. When God sets you apart, do you think he sets you apart to be the one that constantly reminds everyone around you that they're under judgment? No. When God sets you apart, does he set you apart to be a closed community of people that lets no one from the outside in? Maybe you dress differently, you act differently, maybe you don't even use electricity. Does that, is that the type of setting apart that he's talking about? No. We know that's not what Paul is getting to. To be set apart for God's holy purposes means that you are recipients of God's grace in Jesus and you're not supposed to look like the culture around you. These Christians were not supposed to look like the Corinthians. They were supposed to look like saints who live in Corinth. And we are not supposed to look like the people who live in the Youngstown metro area. We are supposed to look like saints who live in the Youngstown metro area. Salting the community with the flavor of the gospel, shining light in dark areas, showing that God is greater than the desires of the world, and that a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ results in lasting joy, fulfillment, and eternal reward in a way that nothing this culture can offer us will yield. God's calling on your life is to display his love and care and glory and to do it through faithfulness. That's why he sets you apart. And it's not easy. But he gives you the ability to do it. And so quickly, 
we see in verses 4 to 7 that we looked at just a moment ago that one of the markers, uh, the marker points of a church, is that God gives her, the church, many gifts and abilities to glorify Him and to build them up. These are called spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians talks about spiritual gifts. They're more than strength. They're more than unique ways in which you have skills. These are ways in which the Holy Spirit of God empowers individuals just like you to make His glory known and to build up the people around you. And there's an extensive list of what those gifts are in 1 Corinthians 12-14 and Romans 12 and Ephesians 4. And I encourage you to take a look at them. A number of years ago, the Barna Group did a survey about spiritual gifts and uh, indicated that only two-thirds of American Christians had even heard of them. The other third didn't even know what a spiritual gift was. Evangelical Christians had a higher percentage, as you might imagine, but there's a number of false spiritual gifts that people also tended to mix in. Things like a sense of humor or singing, or happiness, or creativity, or even clairvoyance. Overall, 21% of the respondents listed a gift that wasn't listed in Scripture. And between those who do not know their gift, 15%, and those who say that they don't have one, 28%, and those who claimed gifts that aren't biblical, 20%, nearly two-thirds of the self-identified Christian population who claim to have heard about the spiritual gifts, have not been able to accurately apply or identify what the Bible teaches about it as it relates to them. In his introduction to the Corinthians, Paul points to God's faithfulness in helping them to live in the culture around them by gifting them specifically for that purpose. And that's an incredible blessing of God that he gives to you. I regularly talk to people about how the Lord's working in their life, how they might be serving him, how they're growing. Many people still don't know the way that God has gifted them spiritually. And that's difficult. It's perplexing. Because if you don't know how to use your gifts, it'll be difficult to find the lane that God wants you to run in with the greatest level of effectiveness. Verse 5 he talks about Christians being enriched in all speech and knowledge. Look at it with me if you have it there. He says that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed among you. Now, we see that he could be referring to these things in a general sense, but the idea seems to relate to the gifts that he's talking about in verse 7. That Paul spends a large section of the book addressing later on down the line that these Corinthians and you, Christian, in a congregation today, are made rich in every way as a result of God's goodness. And that's applied in specific ways in what they say and what they know. God makes you rich in all speech and knowledge, what you say and what you know. He doesn't leave us to try to just figure it out. He empowers us 
to live in the context that we're in. That's part of the privileged standing that you have as a Christian. It's part of being equipped for the regular gospel collision that you'll be engaged in. And it's part of what it means to serve him accurately. He enlivens your heart and gives you joy and puts you in opportunity to serve him by serving other people. God is faithful to you. God is faithful to you. So keep striving to be faithful to him. That's what Paul is getting to here. God is faithful to you. He gives you high privileged standing. He sets you apart in the contrast to the rest of the world. And he equips you to live in the regular collision of the gospel with the culture. God is faithful to you. So keep striving to be faithful to him. Paul concludes the section in verses 8 and 9. He says, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into, fellowship, into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. He's not going to let you go, and he's not going to let you fail. For many of us, we go through life, and we have seasons where we question if we're really Christians. We have doubts because we struggle with sin. We wonder if our commitment to Christ is enough or if we will cave to the pressures of the world around us. And if you've ever struggled with such thoughts of unworthiness or fear that you might not make it to the end or feel or these types of feelings, know this, God is faithful and he will sustain you to the end. And not just sustain you to the end, but that he will sustain you and present you as one who is guiltless. That is a wonderful thought. To be guiltless before a holy God. If you ever go to Scotland or anywhere uh, like that there are a lot of sheep, and sooner or later, you're going to see a very unusual sight. For many, many years, you might see a sight of little lambs running around in a field, and you'll notice that one or two little lambs has what looks like an extra fleece tied around its back. In fact, you'll see that there are little holes in the fleece for its four legs, and usually a hole for its head. And if you see a little lamb running around like that, it usually means that its mother has died. And without the protection and the nourishment of a mother, any orphaned lamb would die in a large flock of sheep. If you take that orphaned lamb and you try to introduce it to another mother, the new mother will butt it away. She won't recognize the lamb scent, and as a result, will know that the new baby is not one of her lambs. But thankfully, most flocks are large enough that there is an ewe that has recently lost a lamb. And so the shepherd will skin the dead lamb and make its fleece into a covering for the orphaned lamb. 
And then he'll take the orphan lamb to the mother whose baby had just died. Now when she sniffs the orphaned lamb, she will smell the fleece of her own baby lamb. And instead of butting it away, she will accept it as one of her own. In a similar way, you have become acceptable to God by being clothed with Christ. Your position in the world is chosen and set apart by God. Your standing before him will be guiltless, not because you never sinned, but because Christ never sinned. And when you are clothed in him, you stand before the holy, just, righteous God of the universe, and you are called guiltless. God is faithful to you. He's faithful to you. And so keep striving to be faithful to Him. The work of our salvation from start to finish is God's work. He's faithful. Because He's faithful, we strive to be faithful. Because God is just, we pursue justice. Because God is gracious, we respond to Him in worship. Because God is loving, we express love to those around us. And what we feel in the depths of who we are is this ever-growing sense of gratitude to Him who calls us the church, who sets us apart, who puts us in community with all of those who call upon His name. And it's hard to pursue godliness in the culture today. It's hard to be different. Sociologists and cultural analysts talk about a society in which we live and it means that we have a constant public pressure that is moving away from morality and from organized religion and authority of a divine being and replaces it with instant gratification and self-definition all the time. It's hard to pursue God. It's hard to raise kids in the Lord. It's hard to be faithful in your work when you live in a culture like that. But God is faithful to you. He is so faithful to you. So keep being faithful to him. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you that you call us to be your own, that you put us on a trajectory that we cannot put ourselves on, that you present us before you on the final day as guiltless because of the Lord Jesus. Encourage us today. Encourage us with our standing. Encourage us with your work. Give us the joy of the Spirit. Help each and every one here know the gifting that you have given them, that they may use it for the sake of their good and your glory, we pray. Amen.